Wohl sounds gun. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Super sounds of the 70s weekend just keeps on coming with this little ditty that reached up to 21 in May of 1970. The George Baker selection, Little Green Bag. Stinking Paws Podcast. Good evening, Scott here with Paul, with Charlie. Hello. Good evening. Hello. Paul looked to be really worried then because <laughs> I had a very long pause. It was a very pregnant pause. <laughs> Scarily pregnant. Do you know why there was a pause? A stinking I, one. No, I forgot your name. That's all right, I've only known each other nine uh, years, yeah, so don't worry about it. Than that, yeah. Hello, hi guys, how we doing? I was fine until then. <laughs> I feel insulted now. I just I just looked and you looked at me back in the eyes and I thought, uh, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing in my house? <laughs> oh, it's good to see. It's been a fucking while, hasn't it? It's Yeah, it's been a fair few months. Months, yeah. Well, well, Since July, maybe? Yeah. The, the weird, well, not the weird thing, but the usual thing about the Stinger Paws podcast is... We've got about six episodes that haven't gone out at the moment of the time of recording. Um, we are 13th of November. This is probably not going to go out till the new year. Someone needs to get editing. Someone's got too much on their bloody plate. Um, you know, the Sean Connery ones. At this point in time, the Sean Connery episodes haven't gone out that we was going to try and get out in October. We've got other stuff that we've done. Philadelphia Story. You know, all these other episodes... Not a problem. Not a problem. We're just enjoying each other's company and talking about great movies. Whose choice was it to do it? That was mine. Why? That wasn't accusing you of anything, but why? I think it was my turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've done a lot of 50s and 60s and a lot of classics from that era, yeah. which I really enjoyed. Um I just thought I'd bring it up a few decades and do something. We've done a lot of Tarantino films um, over the years. A couple now, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just thought we'd missed out on this one. So um, sometimes we avoid the real big films just for the sake of avoiding them because everyone else has done them at some point. But I, I just thought, this film needed to be uh, addressed. Think about it. This film is 30 years old. Yeah, yeah. next year. That yeah. is frightening. Yeah. How old are you, Charlie? 33. Jesus. So, so you're oh, still a bit weird when you got Charlie in the mix. So. <laughs> but 30. So, yeah, I was 22 when this came out. 
I saw it on a double bill with Natural Born Killers. Oh, also written. By, yeah, know. that was. But a I had to double check film. because I thought, hang on, they weren't released at the same time. Natural Born Killers was ninety five. Ah. Was it? Yeah. Much later. Yeah. So well, they... Reservoir Dogs wasn't brought out on video um, in this country till '95 because of um, certification problems. That's what happened. And, and it got another cinema release. Yeah, it got it? a cinema release in '94 yeah, again. There we go. Same year as Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because it, it this wasn't that big until Pulp Fiction, and then people looked back at it. And saw how big it was. Yeah. yeah. So that makes sense. And so I, I saw it at Lakeside. The cinema. That's mad that I remember you saying that from mm. when we reviewed Pulp Fiction that many years ago. You, there you go. Like, yeah. Telling the same old stories all <laughs> yeah. these years down it's, the line. It's mate. something that I'm deprived of because these are all films that I hold in high regard, but I don't have a good story because. I watched them that much retrospectively. Yeah. After yeah. That. If I remember rightly, you'd only just watched Pulp Fiction when the Stinking Pools podcast first yeah. started. Just after I'd seen Django, I'd seen Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown a few years before. Yeah. But Pulp Fiction was sort of like one of the later ones that I watched. And, and that was eight years ago we started this podcast. Yeah. yeah. See, this is why we bring you on board. Yeah. But I, I remember sort of Pulp Fiction being one of those things that had been on on a Friday or Saturday night on BBC, but I'd watched it. I'd, I'd put it on, and it was like pretty much the ending sort of scene in the diner where oh, uh, honey bunny and all that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like when it comes full circle. And thinking this is interesting, but I've obviously got to see the full thing. So um, where are were you then? Well, ten, year, would, 10 years ago, whatever, wasn't it? Well, yeah. no, this would have been even longer ago that I sort of caught Pulp Fiction on TV. Oh. Um, and I think sometimes when a director has the reputation of Tarantino, you kind of sometimes push back against it and think, like, the tendency is to say, oh, yeah. it might be overrated, do you know what I mean? If someone's yeah. that held in high regard... But, it's, but then this was his first real solo effort... I mean, it, you'd had from Dust Till Dawn before this. Uh, no, this is, this is the very oh, it, first, yeah. Or was this after? Yeah, Dust Till Dawn was after. Right, I mean, okay. how aware of, at the time, 92, were you aware of this movie? Part I wouldn't have seen this in 92. No, I, exactly. Because I, it wasn't released, generally, was it? I, I think, like yourself, I would have watched this after I'd seen Pulp Fiction. Right, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I was vaguely aware of it that Empire We haven't Magazine, actually mentioned the name of the film yet, by the way. Well, it's, it's, it's on... <laughs> it's on the episode name, It's sure. on the episode, yeah. mate. You know, we, we're reviewing uh, Cinderella. Spoiler alert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, this was actually the first Tarantino film that I saw, but I had that benefit of being, oh, everything right. being that much after, do you know what I mean? Yeah. This, this film's reputation was well cemented by the time that I sort of went about seeing it. So, I don't know, it's... I don't know if that's a good thing that it was the first one that I saw or not. Yeah, I think it puts you in good stead for the rest mm. of them. Certainly in terms of the fucking violence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell you what, let's play the trailer back after this. Trailer! 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 Face! Put the gun down! Hear your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. 
Jamie, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, I'm going to shoot this guy. Okay, Reservoir Dogs, released in the US October the 23rd, 1992. Directed by... Oh, somebody I think we're sort of vaguely yeah. familiar with now, Quentin. Tanking Quarantino. That's him. <laughs> Starring Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney. Synopsis. A group of thieves assemble to pull off the perfect diamond heist. It turns into a bloody ambush when one of the men turns out to be a police informer. As the group begins to question each other's guilt, the heightening tensions threaten to explode the situation before the police step in. That's about it, yeah. (laughs) It's the one I don't go back to that often, Tarantino wise. This this is only the second time I've seen it. Yeah. I saw it in the mid nineties and this is the first time I've gone back to it. Charlie? Might be the one I go back to most, not so much as a favourite. It's the most I don't want to use the word uh, disposable. But it's the most kind of you know just stick on and can. It's the punchy yeah. one, isn't it? Yeah, it's the yeah. punchy one. It's not minutes. two and a half hours long. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I think Tarantino said as well about how he befriended like Kurt Cobain and that uh, because like they, I think they might have reached out to him saying Reservoir Dogs is such a brilliant film and he knew the reason was because it's an ideal film for a band that are touring that you can just watch it over and over and have it on in the background. Whereas something like I mean, Pulp Fiction has elements of that, but it's a little bit more complex. The mm. chronology is a little bit more kind of intricate, and it's a longer film. So. It's similar in its chronology, though, isn't it? Because it it starts the at the end, and then in some respects, I look at this film as the the prototype for Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, you can see him playing with the timelines. They are different yeah. films, but this is. Him trying to do something grandiose on a modest budget, yeah. and then by the time he gets to Pulp Fiction, he's got all the toys to play with. I mean, so yeah, he can the, the expand budget, that ridiculously small budget on this one, wasn't it? Well, I think one of the only reasons that he was able to get it made was because of um, the patronage and the friendship of Harvey Keitel, yeah. which is you know huge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> he he was the only yeah. real known big star at um, the time. Buscemi wasn't that well known, was he? No, Buscemi wouldn't Tim, have been. But then Lawrence Tierney, have been. Fr- from years ago, Lawrence Tierney yeah, would have but, been. 
this is that classic Tarantino thing of rekindling someone's yeah. career. Robert Forster yeah, Robert we've spoken yeah. about before. Yeah, you, are, you either start up someone's career or you rekindle them because, yeah. like, John Travolta, for instance, yeah. I mean, Harvey, totally rekindled his career. Harvey Keitel's a weird one and that because he is a huge, huge kind of name in, in Hollywood history now, but there was a period where Harvey Keitel was kind of trying to break through from being a character actor into mm. the leading man. So yeah. there's the famous story about when they were making Apocalypse Now, he was playing the main role as Willard. Mm-hmm. They actually started filming it and they they fired him two weeks into filming of Apocalypse Now, replaced him with Martin Sheen. And it, it feels like as much as Keitel is a big name, mm. he's not necessarily... It wouldn't necessarily is, be like Jack Nicholson. Yeah, he's or not Al necessarily a lead, is he? In is, any is this about film. the same time as the piano? And uh, Bad Lieutenant, I would say. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. It's round about the time where the the resurgence happens, mm. isn't it, for him? Um, it's a strange cast, mm. you know. Tim Roth, not known as a Hollywood yeah, actor at this Br- point, British actor that's probably only done like a few what, British what made, made in Britain, made in Britain. Yeah, you know, Alan Clark. Was yeah, it? I yeah. love that. But there's not anything to say that Tim Roth, you know, would would be the, the star of this show, or, or even Harvey Keitel, or any yeah. of them. It's- and I say Steve Buscemi. I I can name loads of films after this. Yeah. But Chris Penn, best of the best, wasn't he in or something? Mm. One of those things. Ba- Baby's Day Out. Was he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we just we had to. Yeah, yeah. yeah we have to reference. Jesus. He was in Baby's Day Out. <laughs> not two and a half cops. <laughs> Cop and a half. Cop and a half, that was it. I'm oh, sorry. Well, two and a half cop, or cop and a half would have been a good sort of name oh. for this film, really, considering how obliterated one of them becomes. But, um, yeah, this, this is one of those films that you look back to, you think, oh, it's him, it's him, it's him. Yeah. At the time. At the time. Yeah, there were no ones. Um, it's, it's similar to watching, I don't know, like a cult TV series where everyone became a big star afterwards. Yeah. Sort of like Paul Rudd or somebody. That yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, I know what you mean. Or if yeah. you watch, I, I guess, like the US version of The Office. Yeah. Most, that's quite star-studded, yeah. 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 Like Rashida Jones, mm. etc. and that. But mm. at that time. And I think um, that's the difference in in watching it now to watching it then. It's an incredible first movie. As good a debut, I would say. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact that this was an independent as well. Was, was just... Rodriguez involved in this? They've been good friends for a very long time, but I think Rodriguez would have found himself in a very similar situation mm. to Tarantino where he had to make the contacts and he had to yeah. kind of... Yeah. Hustle a bit to to do what Tarantino did. So it, it sort of reminds me of, you know, we always talk about that Easy Rider, Raging Bull period mm. of, of Hollywood history, where you know the the guys that had gone through film school had you know suddenly become new Hollywood, new Hollywood, and it was the Lucases and all those guys. This is a completely different beast, isn't it? That. Every, it's the famous story. He was working in the video shop, but he that's, was screen, that's the thing that, and all that's that. So I was trying to get at the video shop, which apparently there's quite a few different directors and that that have come out of working in that video shop. But they were all budding screenwriters yeah. and, and you know you know jobbing actors because he, he was in the Golden Girls famously, wasn't he? Terrence playing an Elvis playing impersonator. Elvis impersonator. Yeah, nice. And, and, and it's just incredible that fortune 
Is it fortune smiled upon them, or were they in the right place at the right time? Or I think the sheer or talent obs- shone through, and, and the sheer obsession, mm. the obsession he had. Yeah. yeah, but also, it's funny you mentioning that era of like Hollywood in the past, mm. because if there is one film that I would liken this to, yeah, and it's interesting given the Harvey Keitel thing is Main Street, Main Streets, um, yeah. because it's the low budget version of an iconic director telling you what they are going mm. to do just on a smaller scale. Here's a taster. Particularly in terms of um, not just the nature of like the violence and the crime and it being a kind of a gangster film, for mm. want of a better oh, no, description. It's not the content of the film, it's just the way it came about. But also um, the, the use of soundtracks. So Mean Streets oh, is really significant yeah. because I reckon it's something bizarre, like 70% of the, the film's production of Mean Streets was spent on using things like Jumping Jack Flash and the Ronettes. <laughs> and this film, one of the significant film, things about this film, which we'll probably go on to, is mm-hmm. its use of music. Which, yeah. uh, at the time, I mean, Steelers Wheel Stuck in the Middle has now become I, a born-again classic, I'd like to say. I mean, I, but then I, I was a DJ from 97 onwards for about mm. 10 years in like pubs and clubs was that number two on your track list and you could <laughs> always put that Steelers wheel on what the Larry's Redknapp version <laughs> no <laughs> no 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 Charlie. no, no. <laughs> but yeah it just such a resurgence for that song right but then every other track, Blue Swede and all, all those things. That and we, we, uh, George Baker with uh, George Little, Baker Green Back. Little Green, Green Back. Back. We, we, oh, we never heard on. of that. Nobody had ever heard of that before no. this. And, and so basically what you're saying, Charlie, is quite correct because that these lesser known tracks of music that would have cost him you know, pennies compared yeah. to the thousands that Scorsese would have had to pay for Jumping Jack Flash in the same way has created an iconic soundtrack mm. In the in the same vein, you know. It's slightly annoying how Tarantino gets credit for doing that by putting seemingly incongruous songs into a scene and making yeah. something out of it. Because Scorsese had done it yeah. like two decades before. Could I much. just say it's probably the same year as Home Alone, and the Home Alone soundtrack did exactly the same thing with Christmas songs. Yeah, yeah. Obscure Christmas songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That have since become Christmas classics. Hmm. Not I, a fan. Don't dismiss that, Paul. No. That <laughs> that's a mug off, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just saying. It's Home Alone, you know, you listen to certain tracks, you think, oh, that's from Home Alone. You listen to a certain track from this, you automatically say that's from Red I, don't, I don't think there's ever been a song more synonymous with a film than Stuck in the Middle of You. Yeah. Now. Because yeah. everyone, if you said what film, they'd say. Not only what film, but they say what scene from yeah, that film. specifically. Can we talk about that scene? Can. Lend me your ear. <laughs> Friends, Roman. Every time I watch Reservoir Dogs, and I've seen it a fair few times, we all have, it still surprises me that the camera cuts away. Mind your head. Was it watch your head? Like yeah. the, the thing it yeah. says above the shaft thing. Like, yeah. yeah. Charlie, you've seen it a few more times than Paul. You've seen it about the same sort of time as me. I, yeah, in, I've, I've in your known brain, that it cuts away, but yeah. But in, in your brain, brain, do you, you remember it. it being him cutting the ear off? But to be honest, even though it cuts away, you still cringe. Yes. You still go, oh! <laughs> and you see the gaping wound as well. Yeah. 
I think it's more distressing when the petrol gets thrown over him. Yeah, because he's like, like, you know, he's he's on he's like they might as well got Michael J. Fox to play him. To be honest, at that point, but um, do you know what made me laugh this time round? You know where Michael Madsen is pointing the gun at Marvin, mm. and he's like twisting away and turning away from the gun, and Michael Madsen's laughing because every time he points the gun, he tries to get away from it, and he can't mm. move because he's tied yeah. away. Liam, our friend Liam, who has been a host on this this podcast before had a water pistol one day at work and he's pointing it at people and your automatic reaction it's only a fucking water pistol but you do you know, oh my god you know you Matrix. cringe and it's you, like you, someone you pause. It was exactly someone right. gets an elastic band and pulls it back yeah and you do you cringe <laughs> that's a good point actually that's phenomenal acting from the the guy from Marvin playing. yeah does Marvin like, Nash does Tarantino like the name Marvin Yes, specifically. Oh, oh no, yeah. I shot Marvin in the head. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. But another thing I was going to say about that scene is the actual song um, stuck in the middle, like mm. Steelers Will. Jerry yeah. Rafferty. See, yeah. this is what I'm going to ask. Like, was Jerry Rafferty a big star at that time when no, that song not came out? No. Not until Baker Street and Night Owl. Which no, would have been 78. Yeah. Yeah. You'll get it right this time and all that. That's it. Yeah. 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 Drunk himself to death. So, but, but basically, what is the premise? Is it's like K Billy? Is it K Billy's? Sound of the seventies. Yeah, yeah. So, that's the excuse for playing yeah, a seventies sound. Stephen Wright was the DJ. Stephen Wright, who was my a, god, incredible. It, I know he's a really dry comedian <laughs> in real life, but it's if you ever humor, had a DJ that <laughs> spoke like that, you like. What the hell? ASMR. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, introduce a track and shut up. It made me laugh, though, because that is the nature of the soundtrack. And I know he mentions these kind of songs later in the scene, but it's ironic that they begin the film by having a discussion about Madonna. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> like a virgin. Yeah. yeah. It's about her finding herself. No, it's that's about great. She, like, she likes big dicks. But to me, that's, <laughs> to me that is like... Tarantino starts as he means to go on with that like kind of dialogue in the opening scene. It's, it's, That's the, it's like, the shocking side of it, yeah. isn't yeah. it? As well, it's just like, and, and and it develops into this whole sequence of Steve Buscemi not tipping. Oh just, God! Just yeah. Oh, see, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> I totally agree with him. For me, I, <laughs> see, see, I, I knew you would. See, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you're a tight cunt. But uh, no. I, I totally disagree with Steve Buscemi, but I just think it's amazing the the, the banality the, the actual, of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, that's that's replicated in Pulp Fiction. Diner philosophy, sort yeah, of thing. And yeah, and it's it's just it's just this banal conversation about tipping, about what like a virgin actually means. And, and it goes on for like 10 minutes or And about but you are, Toby Chung, Chang, Hung, yeah. Yeah. whatever it was. Going on about Charlie his address book. Chan. Yeah, the address <laughs> book. But for that whole 10 minute, 12 minute sequence, you are totally absorbed yeah. in seven, eight men sitting around the table. Often, just more, than the talking. Scene, often more than the scenes of Ireland, yeah. which is interesting. Come on, throw in a bug. Uh uh-uh, uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? You know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. 
I don't even know a fucking Jew would have the ball to say that. Now, let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. It's for the birds. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick? <laughs> <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Hey, look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want to fill six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. And I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job that society deemed tip-worthy. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So I was working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And this non-college bullshit you're giving me, I got two words for that. Learn to fucking type. Because if you're expecting me to help out with the rent, you're in for a big fucking surprise. Just convince me. Give me my dollar back. Hey. Leave the dollars there. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. Wait a minute. Who didn't throw in? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink? Why not? You don't tip. You don't tip? What do you mean you don't tip? They don't believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you. Cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. All right, since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in. But normally, I would never do this. Mind what you normally would do. Just cough in your goddamn fuck like everybody else. Thank you. What I loved about this film is that if you broke it down, there's probably six or seven sequences throughout the whole film. It doesn't spend two minutes on a scene and jump to the next mm. and then jump back. It plays out that whole scene in that um, location and then we'll go on and it'll play out for like 10, 20 minutes of just two or three actors in there. It doesn't away. hurry the film up. Yeah. I mean, it's not a long film by Tarantino standards. It's a comfortable 90 minutes, isn't it? Yeah. But it, it really just does each scene justice. And I, watching it again today, you can see there's some possible ad-libs in there as well. Oh, there was a bit loads. in the... Uh, the warehouse or wherever they're meeting up afterwards where the door opens on its own mid-scene when they're all talking and Harvey Cartel walks up to it as uh, Mr Blonde is still doing his dialogue and he shuts the door and turns around and you think that wasn't supposed to happen because mm -hmm. 
it just made it feel so much natural. Yeah. Much more natural. Ironically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I totally agree. I think for me, it's like, I cannot tell you how many times I've watched this film. And at no point... Go on then. Yeah. Go on, but, tell uh, us. There's never been a single time watching it where I really give a fuck about the heist or about yeah. what's going no, to happen. That's true, yeah. it's, I'm not interested in that. And I don't think Tarantino made it in a way that wanted you to be obsessed with the, the no. heist in a way that like a film like Ocean's Eleven or... Mm. No, or I Fifi think that's why he be. left it out. He, yeah. he didn't want that to be the main focus of the story. The chemistry is on the screen. Yeah. You yeah. don't see the heist because the chemistry is there. And it's like, I think, watching it this time, the only thing that I sort of picked up on is like, well, if it hadn't ended ended like it did, I may have suspected that uh, either Keitel may have been undercover because mm, he was so yeah, desperate true. to be yeah. Yeah. at uh, Freddie's like, aid kind of thing. And it was just him being a bit too kind of um, sympathetic. A bit didn't, too soft. What didn't he was you trying think to do. Tim Roth sounded like Kermit when he was in pain? Yeah, <laughs> in the back of the car. Sounded I'm like gonna Rob, die, I'm Robbie, gonna die. Robbie Savage. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die, man. Sounded more like Silla Blake. What, well, <laughs> Bobby. Oh, Bobby. Life is full of surprises. What a whole new spin the fucking movie, you Um, yeah. Still a black in Reservoir. <laughs> reservoir Bob. <laughs> Bobby, Reservoir Bobby. Bobby. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Now, <laughs> then. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Where were we? Tim Roth. Tim Roth. I think yes. Tim Roth annoyed the fuck out of me in this. I used to watch this film thinking that Tim Roth's character was overacting, mm. but then the penny dropped and it became a thing of the character actually has to overact. overact. He's an amateur actor. And I'd never really got the significance of the commode story, I'll be honest. I, I don't know why yeah. that's the thing that would convince them. It's just one of those stories of a close call in getting caught in something illegal Yeah, that sort of... To another criminal, just makes go, him authentic. Oh, yeah, I've been somewhere like that, yeah. sort of doing something. But I also think the point of it as well is that, in certainly in the first two Tarantino films, is that he's good at depicting criminals who think they're cleverer yeah. than they are. Like, so mm. it's it's. Like, I mean, the fact I've used cleverer shows how many pints I've had. Like, <laughs> yeah, more um, clever. Yeah, smarter. <laughs> um, but it's. <laughs> These are people who think they're at the top of their game and they're just a hair's breath away from getting rumbled and they do get rumbled and in Pulp Fiction it happens as well. Like the way yeah. Travolta meets his, his mate or his kind of is like just... Tim Roth in that one as well? No, he's in the only yeah, other... He's always Honey Bunny, isn't he? Yeah, of course he's, he's, he's yeah. And then the other one, he wasn't in any for years until The Hate for Late, was he? Um, but yeah, there's this idea that what Hollywood does before is always makes the criminal quite smart and quite one step ahead. But yeah. in Tarantino, what he's good at doing, which is kind of like based on his influence from Elmore Leonard, is that criminals aren't that clever because if they were yeah. smart, they wouldn't be doing what they were doing anyway. Like, yeah, they'd and, find an easier way to Yeah, and they've, I mean, the point of Reservoir Dogs as well is that they've been rumbled before they even get there. 
because yeah. Yeah. Freddy's infiltrated this. So, and, and this is the clever part of it about the, the timeline, the chronology. And we were talking about this earlier. Your interest is always held throughout this movie because you're fed little snippets of information, but you don't know, hang on a minute, why are they talking about that? And then five, ten minutes later, we get a flashback or a flash yeah. forward that will yeah. fill in the pieces of the jigsaw. Yeah, mm. it leaves you in anticipation of that flashback because you want to know what went on because you hadn't watched it for quite a while Paul were you finding it like a new movie and it's like oh my god hang on what's this bit the only bit I remembered from there was stuck in the middle and the slicing of the ear oh so all the bits were everything else I didn't remember one tiny little bit because it's been 30 or 25 Mm. years since I've Mm. seen it you could be forgiven for thinking that the entirety of the film took place in that warehouse as well Mm. but actually it does go back into like the boss's office I mean it just shows you how cheap that was to make though because there wasn't exactly many locations, was there? There was. Do you know what? I almost thought this could have been a stage play. Yeah, you point. could actually. actually to put it on the stage. Yeah, you could yeah. actually do that. He said he's either going to do a novelisation of it, a stage play of it, or maybe all three. You'd do a remake of it with yeah, an entirely the, the, different cast. The rumor was oh, nice. that he was going to make this. The remake of it is tenth and last film. But yeah. he has denied that now. I still don't think that tenth and last thing is going to ever happen. I think he'll just keep going. It would be a shame for someone so talented that brings films to us that are so different to to only do the ten. I think what he's scared about is because his films are so like revered or, or even nostalgic so it's going to get to a point where he's too old to be the person who's bringing you that nostalgia he's, I think he wants younger filmmakers to be making films that are making nostalgic references to films that maybe even came out after Reservoir Dogs that kind of retrospective thing Like, yeah, do, you, do you think he might make that next western just to be the western director he did that say yeah, didn't he he it's said you've done. got to make three westerns three, to be it? a wrestling well, director. I mean, undeniably, Django is probably it's probably my second favourite film ever. After Mary Poppins. Untouchables. Oh, right. <laughs> um I and obviously you've done Hateful Eight. And this Which, is the thing, is like Charlie mm. said, you, you know, to be classed as a Western mm. movie director, you have to make three Westerns. Um, do you want? Does he want to get that gold? Does he want that crown, Charlie? I don't think he's too fussed about it now. I don't think he is, no. I don't think he's too fussed about anything like that. He's, he, he's, he just makes films that he wants to make. Right. The last Western internationally revered, got Ennio Morricone the Oscar, for God's sake. You know, yeah. You know, he hasn't got to prove anything with regard to West. He also said that he wants his temp film to be slightly smaller scale. He said once upon a time in Hollywood, he's probably going to be his big kind of huge scale film. What did you think of that? Loved it. I liked Absolutely it. Absolutely loved it. But he said this is a film where he got like main streets in Hollywood closed down for the yeah. day. Mm. So like in terms of the scale of it and the production of it, it took a lot of effort. And I believe that doing a Western is a very arduous affair because the locations are hugely important and you've got to go yeah, the remote maybe, whatever, even, yeah. maybe abroad or you've got to go to remote parts of the States. 
he said he wants to scale it back for his last film and that's why he was initially toying with doing a remake of Reservoir Dogs because it's it's so but you know why, why you would should team up with Pixar do an animation <laughs> brilliant yeah, yeah but, but, but why alright 10's a nice round number the man's not old no you know there, there are people directing In, into their 70s 80s Spielberg yeah. and all these guys are still directing Scorsese it would be nice to be that quirky person that says, I've done ten movies, ten, ten of them have been bloody successful. You know, yeah. he hasn't mm. you know, made any turkeys. But he also said that he really wants to go into a different art form, so he's done a novelisation of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yes, and I believe yeah. that he wants to do that with maybe a more original kind of plot or something. Um, yeah. But I... I I'm sort of I'm a bit cynical about it like you are I think you'll miss it too much like yeah. he's, he won't do it I actually I'm think it's a sure. shame do it while you've got your faculties to do it like because yeah. God forbid he could get like dementia in later life and not be able to actually make films mm. like do it while you've got the potential the, the, to do it the potential the to actually achieve yeah. this yeah, yeah. You, you don't get a footballer that says right I'm only going to play three seasons I've scored 20 yeah. every season that's enough for me mm. you if you've got the talent, carry on. And as long as you're enjoying it as yeah. well. And, and I don't think he's ever going to get to the point where, he, like you said, Charlie, that he doesn't enjoy doing what he's doing. That man lives for celluloid, basically. Also, as a director, the more you've achieved, the older you get, the more kind of uh, respect you command, which makes you a better director and yeah. more people will want to work with you. And so. it also gives you the opportunity to try something a little bit different. I mean, look at Spielberg, right? His next movie is a remake of West Side Story. Mm. Okay. His first musical. That's different. <laughs> right? I've got no doubt that he'd be able to achieve that. Though. And it will, be, it will be a typical Spielberg movie, but at the That's same time, you know it probably not going to be shit. Yeah. So I can't imagine Tarantino saying ten movies. Nah, that's it. I think he just likes keeping sort of journalists on their toes and not knowing what his next movie is. Really. I like that. I yeah. like yeah. that idea that you know there's the potential. We've got another twenty, thirty years of Tarantino mm. movies coming up. There might only be one, two, three. I don't know. You know, because there are few and far between. Yeah, he doesn't churn them out. No, does he? Well, this is thirty years, and it's like number nine now. Whatever. So. I can't ever see him turning his back on creativity. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. If, if he has right. an idea, or someone comes to him with an idea, as you say, I can't see that he will turn that down. Mm. If he has that spark of an idea that thinks this will be a fucking great movie, mm. yeah. I mean, he's only ever made one movie that was based on source material that wasn't his own, and that was Jackie Brown. He's yeah. only ever adapted one novel, and I, I know there's, you know, if you can. You can be flippant and say, you know, all his movies are based on other things. Oh, yeah. He, but everything's original screenplay usually. So. Yeah, he's been accused of plagiarism, but it's not. It's his interpretation. It's a love letter to... Yeah. to um, that's what I liked about the Grindr. Sorry, that's what I liked about sorry. the You're talking about your apps again now. <laughs> the Grindhouse. Swipe left. The Grindhouse. <laughs> Double the um, <laughs> the, the fact that he was like... he. he he took it upon himself and like Robert Rodriguez to say like, let's just do this. It's like you said, a love letter to the seventies grindhouse movies, and we're going to do it properly. We're going to do it with like the trailers, and we're going to make the film stock look really shit. Is that death? Death proof and, and um, planet terror. Planet terror. Yeah. Thank you. 
And it didn't work. It, it backfired on them spectacularly because a lot of people just didn't get what they were trying to do. I thought, I thought Death Proof was brilliant. Did you look see? Yeah. That is a a rare voice mm. there because a lot of people think, oh, it's not a Tarantino movie. No, it's, it's like, just so. It's a passion up. project. Like, yeah. Brilliant. Like, yeah. And I'm so glad that he did it. And then, like, you know, they did the trailers for Machete, which then became a movie and all of that sort of stuff that came from it. And Danny Trejo. Danny Trejo, yes. yes. <laughs> Whatever he does in the future, it's going to be brilliant. I, and I yeah. do hope he continues And, and people movies. anticipate it because he only does so few movies, one probably every four years on average. Mm-hmm. That's what we're um, saying. It's like number yeah, nine. People look years. forward to it yeah. and they look forward to the fact that it is going to be totally different from his last one. You can't say that any of his nine films are, oh, that's too similar. That, like I say, the only similarities I'd really make are between the first three. There's timelines, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown could probably get away with being set in the same universe, maybe. Yeah. Uh, it can in a certain way with the Vincent Vega and Vic Vega. And yeah, Dora yeah, like Michael Madsen's yeah, character yeah. Mm-hmm. in Reservoir Dogs is supposed to be... John Travolta's brother, brother, oh, right. okay, and he, yeah. he was even toying with the idea of making a film called The Vega Brothers yeah. early mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. Um, and that's an Elmore Leonard thing again, where all of his novels are like set in the same universe, so characters will just reappear later on, a bit like yeah. Stephen King will do. Oh, it's always on Castle Rock and all that. Yeah, sort of yeah. Stuff. yeah, yeah. But um, I think the more, I was saying this earlier, the more acclaimed you become as a director, the more you want to kind of move away from what people's expectations are of you and try and show that you're not a one-trick pony. Yeah, so, yeah you don't just think, oh, that worked, let's milk it. Yeah. yeah. So, but Tarantino doesn't do I, that. I really. can't imagine his create. I can't imagine his creativity ever diminishing to the point where he's going to say, ten movies is enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, you watch him in an interview, and he's like someone who's had ten espressos, isn't he? Like, <laughs> he always yeah. has been. Yes, yeah. uh, and that great interview with um, who's the Christian Guru Murphy? Oh my God, it crucifies him, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, it's just you feel so embarrassed, sort of thing, and you think, yeah, too right. You get asked the same old questions. You're trying to demean me. Yeah. Well, he's also become the kind of whipping boy in terms of like you know. Oh, we're just going to put all of the ills of society on the fact that he makes violent films. But at no point can you, any sort of like sensible adult say that his films are ever a justification for the actions of the characters. I think that's mm-hmm. a really obscure way yeah. of looking yeah. at it. But also, I think there's far more violent films out there. Christ, mainstream yeah. violent, you know, just I mean, all the time. most most of the American shit horrors that they churn out. Yeah. Have got so much more violence in. He's only doing what Sam Peckinpah was doing exactly. like, several decades before. A couple of notches below it, actually, yeah. as well. You know. Blood squibs. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Django with the, the squibs in Django. <laughs> Watching Django in a cinema is an incredible experience. Yeah. Like yeah. just seeing that kind of on screen and seeing the Western kind of put into that context was. Genius, yeah. I felt. I went to the roadshow performance of Pay for Late uh, at Leicester Square. Was with you? 
Hmm? I was with you. You were there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'd had a few Spooky, drinks. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'd had a few Obviously, he'd had a few yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, the opening that night. Was opening night, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we all went and it, we, we got the program, didn't we? Yeah, it was, it was like we had the interval and it was done like a like a proper. Oh, mate, do you remember that bit where, like, you know, spoilers if you've not seen the hate for late? There, there's <laughs> a, a tough shit, scene yeah. where Samuel L. Jackson's character kills Bruce Dern. Yeah. And then um, one of the captains playing a piano and he. he lifts down the lids <laughs> and then it stopped for the interview and the, the fucking place erupted it was just <laughs> honestly we up. were in a cinema and we had an interval at that yeah, point yeah brilliant and like me and Charlie are like oh well I don't remember it at all <laughs> 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 but I can I can remember the atmosphere and it was like we've now got 15 minutes or whatever it was before we're going to watch the second half of the film I wonder if um the fact that normal screenings of the film didn't have that might have detracted from it for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. That was my first instance yeah. of seeing it, and it's just, oh, it was genius. It was like watching a film and its sequel on the same night. But yeah. then we all do that at home, on Netflix, on whatever you're watching it on. You'll, you'll watch a film and you'll get an hour, hour and a half into it. That's go, true, but this was... This I, was I'll need a piss. It was deliberately... I, I, I this was no, deliberate. This was designed. Yeah. This was designed. Yeah. To have that break at that particular point, and it was the same as like in the fifties, you know, when when widescreen came in and oh, cinema. You remember started. that, wouldn't you? I do during the war, and it was to combat, you know, the, the influx of like the TV, like television. Let's make pictures bigger and bolder. Yeah. Let's make Ben Hur. Let's make these movies three hours long, four hours long. Give them an interval. Blah blah blah. You know, making an experience as opposed to just something that. That One you could watch every day indoors, yeah, yeah. and that's what Netflix is. You can watch that every day indoors, and and Charlie and I, as I say, when we went to the Hateful Eight, they recreated that. Mm. That's why I made a point of watching The Irishman at an independent cinema before it got put on Netflix because I knew because of the running time is it was three and a half hours, yeah, but possibly in that sort of ballpark. But it was never going to be something that I would have watched intently. Yeah, unless I'd really You'd be distracted, wouldn't you? Yeah, so to sit in a cinema and watch it as it was made, the full kind of feature was just quality because I, I do think it detracts from it when you can sort of choose to pause yeah. something and yeah. come back to it, it. It does, and it's an unfortunate sort of uh, evolution of society is that you can watch it half hour at a time if you wanted to watch a movie in like mm. over yeah. four or five days. It's the fact they're so readily but, available as well. Yeah. Is it always a fucking thing? But you know? say, me and Scott went to see the recent Bond film and it's the first time I've been at cinema in ages and actually having to sit there for two hours plus mm. to watch a film, it just forces you to be more engrossed Did you like in it, the though? film. Yeah, I absolutely loved yeah, that's it. That's what I mean. It's, it's a totally different experience. Yeah, it's been so many years since I've gone to the cinema on a regular basis and mm. just watched films start to finish. You can't pick up your phone. You can't go to the loo or whatever. You just sit there and that is your evening. You are watching that film. But that was the whole reason as to why the Bond film got so many delays because they could have just released it as a home box yeah. office no. streaming thing. No, and, no that, uh, that is a film you need to see at the cinema. But also the tradition of James Bond is like, you know, made in that vein and they don't want to yeah. change it. I mean, 
evidently the James Bond franchise might it's been a point of discussion for years. It might they? die off. Good job it's being put out in the new year. But like, you know, there's been so much there's been so much speculation that the James Bond franchise is gonna change irrevocably yeah. in the future. They wanted to retain changer. they want to retain those traditions while mm, they yeah. can, I think. I mean cinemas are gonna potentially never be the same again now anyway. It's all changed. It's a game changer. I, I think, I mean, we saw it on IMAX. Um, I think the way forward is just to bloody make everything IMAX. <laughs> Bigger and bolder. And, <laughs> and then you are getting the absolute no middle fullest ground. experience. You either watch it at IMAX or you watch it on the best possible kind yeah. of cinematic yeah. experience yeah. you can. But Sitting then, three then, rows back from a, like, 60-foot screen... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> then again, the TVs you can get now, seventy-five inch TVs, yeah. and you know, all right, it's not going to be exactly like a cinema screening. Yeah. But fuck me, can you remember? Sorry, Charlie, but when we were teenagers, the biggest screen TV we had was a twenty-four inch TV. You were lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Used to sleep in the shoebox in Millet Road. Luxury. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it may have been, you know, or black yeah. and white fucking portable. Yeah. But that was it, you know. But now, I'm pretty sure you guys, your standard TV, even in your bedroom at home, Charlie's a 32. No, more, more, yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, and yours I've is got a 55. Exactly. You wouldn't even dream of that. <laughs> no. When well, we were a teenager. And it's still, when you've had it for a, a month or two, it's just like, oh, it's TV. It's, it's just normal. Yeah. It's just not It's just not normal. Big. <laughs> And you so, don't even notice it. So that no. cinema experience when we saw James oh, Bond, yeah. just, that was fucking loud. <laughs> it, was loud. <laughs> it was It was great. We had the reclining seat. We paid £17 a ticket. Yeah, reclining leather seats. And it was just like, oh, fucking, the, the speakers <laughs> under our arse. <laughs> Someone still fell asleep. I did nod off a little bit. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I do it every time. I can't. It's too comfortable. <laughs> I must confess to falling asleep watching the Corrupt FM movie. It would just do nothing. But um, they had a few beverages. <laughs> Guys, we've drifted away from Reservoir Dogs slightly. Watching it this time, Paul, after a thousand years. Yeah. One of the first things I noticed was the filming of it. The fact that it's made in the early 90s. But having watched... Um, Peeping Tom previously, which mm. was a 1960s film in vibrant colour. Yeah. There was a lot of comparisons in the filming of it because Tarantino filmed it in such a way that although it was made in 92, it was made to look like... Timeless. No, Yeah, it was made to look like a recent, like, they've just got colour. Mm. So we'll we'll film it in that aspect it wasn't it it was almost like you know these black and white films you see that are colored in right it it was made to look like that it wasn't clear it was still really grainy um and it it was just it it made you more interested in the film it wasn't so clean and crisp that you saw everything as it was meant to be it was still it's Artist- a bit of an, an independent. Yeah, it's still artistically it. yeah. done. Because yeah. the bit that stood out for me was when we were talking about it 
it could have been a stage production. Absolutely, like yeah. The, the way that things were set up. Yeah. And you looked at the set and the way things yeah. like people were standing in certain yeah. positions. That that warehouse that they were in. That was, was, was there was a stage. Wasn't was it? actually an old morgue. All right. Right. Yeah. Because you see um Mr. Blonde at one point when they're having a dialogue, he's sitting on top of a, a sort of brown golden brown hearse in a corner which has got a cover mm. on it, which is from the original. And um the bit in Mr. Pink, no, not Mr. Pink, um, Tim Roth's character. Freddie. Freddie. It was in, in his apartment before when he's trying to get himself ready to go and meet. Yeah. That was actually filmed in the uh, rooms above the morgue, right. which was set out to be an apartment. So it was all filmed within that one building. Blimey. There you go. Research. He does do yeah. his research, Charlie. Yes. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. COVID. And and again, that just says how cheaply that was actually made. Yeah. And he, although, okay, it was Harvey Keitel, as Charlie said, that helped them get some sort the, of uh, producer, wasn't he, or funding for yeah. it. They didn't go wild on it. They were just like, and and it's another reason why they didn't have the heist actually in the film partly because Tarantino didn't really want it in there but secondly because the funding wasn't there to put that big heist scene in there so he left it out to make you think more about what went on I also think it would have been a bit shit yeah it's better to see the off cuts from it than the actual heist itself so is that what makes this something above any other heist movie because there is no heist. Because it's his reinterpretation of the classic thing. You don't like see, like, oh, right, we're going to go in, we get all these plans, you do this, you do this. They do that after the effect. Exactly. You see the planning 45 minutes into the movie. You you see, what you first see is, fucking hell, it's all gone wrong. Actually, what you first see is them all first meeting, isn't it? It's, yes, it's, it's yeah, the diner. talking about like a virgin. Um, but then it, it it just bounces about, doesn't it? Like you say, yeah, and it's, it's you yeah, don't see the Tim even Roth to the development point until where like, Tim Roth has been shot, and obviously Harvey Keitel is looking after him, trying to keep him alive. That's early in the film, and he said he can't die. He's not the grass because mm. he's got shot. And it isn't until really late on in the film you yeah, see why he's got shot because they tried to carjack this woman. She shot him. He wasn't shot in the bank in the heist. It's the most American film, yeah, uh, American thing I've ever seen, where a man yeah. gets shot because he tries to carjack someone who owns yeah. a gun. Like yeah. <laughs> but everyone is thinking to that point. He got shot in the robbery. Yeah. He hasn't got shot in the robbery, which then you think. Oh well, he could have been the cop because he wasn't shot in the robbery, which yeah, yeah. So police clever. would yeah. police would have known. <laughs> well, you he see, was him, the you cop. see him. There's a point where you see him wince at the sheer willingness to shoot cops that the others mm, are sort yeah. of like. Because I think there's a bit early on when it's just Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi in the other part of the warehouse. Well. Freddie's recovering and he says, Oh, did uh, how many people did you kill? He's like, Oh, it's just cops, no normal yeah. no real people. Yeah. Like they're like yeah. they're 
cannon fodder for them. Like. Even the filming of that scene, it wasn't close up to their faces. It wasn't even close up, like, to me and you sort of level. Mm. It was a static camera at the end of a corridor. Yeah. Where Buscemi kept coming in and out because he was doing something off screen. Mm. And, and then it was just really oh. well filmed because... It looked natural. It looked like you were like, it was almost like voyeurism. Yeah. You, you were, tell me. If you yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were looking in on them. Yeah. It it wasn't like oh this camera's going to follow it. There's a bit of a taxi move. driver as well. You've mm-hmm. seen the taxi driver is at the end of a corridor on a payphone. Yeah. yeah. And it sort of moves up and in and uh, I think that was his little kind of nod to something like that. Yeah. It's just so intelligent and okay. Some of it might have been like budget. Orientated. I don't think there was much choice in the matter. Though, was there? But like, yeah. It, it just worked. It just looked so natural. It was like someone had just put a spy cam in that warehouse, end of that corridor, and they were walking in and out. And you didn't know what they were doing off camera. Yeah, yeah. But that was the intrigue of it. Absolutely. Tarantino, genius or not? I've got to say yes. Yes, you're going to say yes. This, I know yeah, you, yes. you both this, will. This yeah. is a this film is a landmark in Hollywood history, in film history it's, in it's general. It's got to be, hasn't it? It's, it's that I remember when we reviewed Neil by Mouth. Yeah, and Gary Oldman did an interview before, and he said the reason he was compelled to go into directing, and he wasn't slagging off Tarantino, and mm. he wasn't slagging anything off personally. He was saying the problem is now is that everyone wants to make Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. He said one could be forgiven for thinking that the history of cinema started with Reservoir Dogs because if you take your mind back to that period yeah. in the mid-90s, everyone was trying to recreate it and everyone was failing. Yeah. And there it's were the f- so many like, yeah. like fake versions of it. and yeah, It I changed the nature of cinema, this yeah. film. Yeah. It's an easy rider, as you mentioned. Like mm. it's Whether people like Tarantino or not, they cannot deny it. That this film changed, yeah, yeah. everything. And everything he done was thinking outside the box. It was right. What would a normal director do now? Right, we'll ignore that. Let's do That's something the else. That's genius of it. Yeah. It's using things that exist already. He's not reinventing the wheel. He's just making a a, a, a unique version of what yeah. already yeah, exists. And, and quite often what he done was a pastiche to someone yeah. else's movie like 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. But it was the combination of all these shots. It's a bit like that Godard sort of thing, like that sort of like a Buddha souffle thing of like trying to... I know it's not our thing. <laughs> we, we really struggle with that, but, I know. But <laughs> what he was... Uh, a Buddha souffle? Like breathless. Breathless. Like, yeah. But it's like... <laughs> so like... Uh, Goddard was trying to sort of like reinvent the heist film himself or the gangster film. Yeah, maybe not to our taste, but Tarantino does that as well. Mm. What you get with, with Tarantino is a guy that hasn't been classically trained, someone that hasn't gone through film school and learned. Or it, it's just a guy that loves movies. Yeah, and he's had a lifetime of watching movies, and he's thought, I could do that. And he's gone about it and fucking achieved it. And he's fucking written it as well. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not the just thing. a director. Yeah, he's not like. just stuck a little bit of his talent into there. He's gone, no, I'm going to do the whole bloody lot. Both orifices. Mm. Mm. Sure. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might be able 
to squeeze in a little <laughs> bit of six degrees of separation, chaps. Oh, suit you, sir. Back after this. You've heard Turn the Beat Around by Vicky Sue Robinson, Heaven on the Seventh Floor, La Freak by Sheik, Fly Robin Fly by The Silver Connection, and now number five. Aloha. Welcome to the Big Kahuna Burger. Would you like to try our Special Agent Utah meal? With juicy pineapple, gooey cheese, sizzling bacon, and I can walk it through the garden. Mmm. 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 That's one tasty burger. Big Kahuna Burger. Mmm. That's a tasty burger. Special Agent Utah meal, only available Tuesdays. Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Steeler's Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. That reached up to number five as K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s continues. I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the 
guys. That was Reservoir Dogs. We are going to revive Six Degrees of Separation. We're going to say revive Charlie. <laughs> We're going to revive Tim Roth. Um, <laughs> you don't make Tunbridge Wells, do you? <laughs> In a mortuary. Six Degrees of Separation. Can somebody please explain the, the rules of Six Degrees of Separation? First song is typically linked to the film that we've just discussed. And the five subsequent songs will have a connection to the previous well, one. Some connection somewhere. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> don't, Scott, don't Scott, ho- <laughs> Scott's a lot better at organising it than I am. If I do it, it's yeah. too tenuous. I, I was going to say Scott's last effort was very tenuous on one of them. It, uh, you could work it out, though. Or That's, tedious. As long yeah. as you work it out. Yeah. And I, I always give clues if, if needed. So, song number one, guys. And it's obvious. Sounds a bit like Fleetwood Mac. Mm, a bit. It's not. It's not Jerry Rafferty, is it? It is Jerry Rafferty. Night Owl? No. No, it's not Night Owl. Good to me. So no, it's not that one. Is it? See, I can only name Night Owl. Baker Street and get it right this time. Well, I'll play get it right next time for you then as well. Yeah, about that. Because Jerry Rafferty is is the link. So. Yeah. From Steely Dan. No, Steely's World. Steely's World. <laughs> Let's That's cut Donald Fagan. <laughs> so, Dan. so why is Steely's World the link? Because he was stuck in the middle with you. He was a member of Steely's World. Was Jerry Rafferty was a member? Exactly. I can't think of the other guy's name that was in it. Exactly. This is a long intro. Six years old and smart as any dumb kid. Come on, Paul. But when you mention the VE, because they're Scottish, D I V O R C. Yep. So, think Billy Connolly and the previous artist, Jerry Rafferty. No, they were in the same band, weren't they? They were, yeah, originally. Oh, God, I can't remember what it was called. It was a skiffle band, wasn't it, or something yeah, s- a similar? Band, a folk yeah. Band, yeah, no, I don't know the name of Jerry Rafferty and Billy Connolly were in a band called the Humble Bums. Humble Bums, that's it. Today, cause he bet the VET and then he ran away. He caused me and my wife to have a big fight, and then both of them bet me. And that's why I am going to get a D-I-V-O-R-C-E. KLF, 3AM Eternal. No. No? Um, 
Tammy Wynette. Didn't she do DIV? No. So, yeah, regroup. Come on. Did KLF. KLF. I don't know a lot about them. They burnt a million dollars. That's what I know them for. A million mate. pounds. This song featuring. It's Tammy Wynette. Tammy Wynette did. did Tammy Wynette do DIVORCA? Yeah. She did. What's a load of shit? (laughs) (laughs) They're driving ice cream vans, though. These were huge, though, Paul. You remember early? Yeah, 91, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Poor man, St. Etienne, for me. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor Who and the TARDIS. Gary Glitters. <laughs> is, yeah, the sampled or released. This wasn't the firm, was it? No. I don't know who sang it. Baker Street. Baker. Doctor Who. Okay. Tom Baker. You were very close. The, the, the name of the track is Doctoring the Tardis. Yeah. yeah. The name of the group is The Time Lords. Yeah. And so we just had Tammy Wynette with and, D-I-V-O-R-C-E. And who else? The KLF. KLF. This is the original incarnation of the KLF. They were known as no the Time way. Fucking hell. No, would never have got that. And they ended up with credibility as Doctor Feelgood Milk and Alcohol. Spot on, Charlie. Doctor Who. Doctor. Is is your link, basically. Brilliant bands. Brilliant song. song now really you've got to think so outside the box so what have you just heard dr phil good milk and alcohol okay phony m yep Day from Canvey Island as well. <laughs> <laughs> Not Rasputin, is it? It's Rasputin by Boney M. So, 
Did he like alcohol and milk? And felt good afterwards. Charlie's got such an intense look on his face. So who is it? Wilco Johnson. Milko Johnson. No. no. Okay, let's think. Milk and alcohol. Yeah. yeah. It's a horrible mixture. White Russian. What's the oh, white match doing? Oh, fucking <laughs> hell. Nice. Nice. I like that. Watch you next time. Back in a minute. Let me tell you what Like a Virgin's about. It's all about a girl who digs a guy with a big dick. Entire song. It's a metaphor for big dicks. No, it ain't. It's about a girl who's very vulnerable. She's been fucked over a few times, and uh, and she meets a guy. Who's whoa, 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 whoa! Time out, Green Bay. Tell that fucking bullshit to the tourists. Toby, who the fuck is Toby? Like a Virgin's not about some sensitive girl who meets a nice fella. That's what True Blue's about. No, granted, no argument about that. What's True Blue? Oh, you ain't heard True Blue. It's a big ass in from now. I don't even follow that top to the pop shit, and you've never heard of True Blue. Yeah, so even saying heard of it, you know, what I asked is how's it go? Excuse me for not being the world's biggest Madonna fan. Personally, I can do without her. I used to like her early stuff. Borderline, when she got out into that Papa Don't Preach phase, I tuned out. But you guys are, like, making me lose my train of thought here. I was saying something. What was it? Oh, Toby's that little Chinese girl. That was the last name. What's that? That's an old address book I found on a coat I haven't worn in a coon's age. What was that name? What the fuck was I talking about? So True Blue was about a guy, uh, a sensitive girl that meets a nice guy, but like a virgin with a metaphor for big dicks. Okay, let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about this coos who's a regular fuck machine. I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. So one day, she meets this John Holmes motherfucker, and it's like, whoa, baby. I mean, this cat is like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. All right, now she's getting this serious dick at you. And she's feeling something she ain't feel since forever. Pain. Pain. Chew, Toby, chew. It hurts. It hurts her. It shouldn't hurt. You know, her pussy should be bubbling up by now. But when this cat fucks her, it hurts. It hurts just like it did the first time. You see, the pain is reminding a fuck machine what it was once like to be a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. Go for it. Let's, let's, let's get this over with yeah. and have some fun.
Okay. Like this hasn't been fun? No, it's been an <laughs> arduous chore. <laughs> Will you let me speak? No. <laughs> interrupt you every time. Next time. No, next time. <laughs> <laughs> it's my choice, isn't it? I, I believe so, sir. It is. Yeah. I'm going to make you suffer. We're going to watch two movies next time. And there's a reason for it. Because I think the second movie that I'm asking you to watch has been much maligned. Is it Jaws 1 and 2? No, no, it needs to be watched in conjunction with the first. Mm. What I'm going to ask you to do, guys, is go back and watch Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. Oh, and Phantom of Solace. And Quantum of Solace. Quantum, Phantom of Solace. <laughs> Phantom of Solace. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd can, Webber's can we, film. Can we start that again? No. <laughs> because, well, he is now. Because I think Quantum of Solace gets this really bad reputation because it's not a great movie. That's like five hours a movie. No, because Quantum of Solace is only like an hour and a half, so. Hey. <laughs> Trust me on this. You've got plenty of time. I, I've of seen time both, but Quantum of Solace is a blur to me. And because I think. Because I think. It was just that filler in between. Right. It's like contractual almost. Yeah. And I think you need to watch it straight after watching Casino Riot because it does follow straight on from it. Yeah. Um, And it'll probably be a better movie, I'm hoping, than you remember. I don't mind that. Are you okay with that, guys? I know you both like James Bond. I've not seen either. What? I haven't seen a James uh, a recent James Bond film like. What is this Get the fuck out of here! The last James Bond film I watched was The World Is Not Enough. Wow, that's even better then because he's I mean, his first Casino Royale, great movie. I've heard great things about um, it, but yeah, I say I can't remember Quantum Solace. I'm just glad he ain't made, making us watch both Casino Royales, the fucking <laughs> David yeah. Niven one. And, yeah. uh, are you both okay with that? Yeah, right. I yeah, yeah, yeah. seen it. So I thought Charlie, you were a, a Bond fan. I was, I was, and then I went off it entirely. And now, now it may be time Ooh. to kind of revisit the, the no. French. Daniel Craig. We're going to get different. three different sort of viewpoints. Then Charlie's going to watch to that. his first Daniel mm. Craig. Paul's going to revisit from the beginning. Yeah. Is it the, only the second time you've seen Casino Royale as well? Yeah, right? yeah. I've only ever seen them all once. Yeah. Oh, this this is going to be interesting. Um, bearing in mind that Paul and I also went to see the last James Bond recently and both loved it. Yeah, brilliant film. This is going to tie everything together. Are you happy to do this after Christmas, chaps? Yeah, yeah. I can book a day off to watch it's them both. Be a... it's, it's true, no, because <laughs> Quantum of Solace is shorter than all the other. I'm aware that Quantum of Solace didn't get a good reception at all. It, yeah. It was the first, if I remember rightly, it was the first... Bond film that actually followed on from the last sequentially well literally yeah, yeah as as so got, yeah. was um, was that directed by not Mendes no he was after wasn't he I think yeah mm. who, who fir- did Casino Royale Daniel Craig no he was like <laughs> the director but then the director the director of a <laughs> director of a Bond film never used to be a huge thing did it whereas mm. now because they're trying to take it in different directions yeah because Danny Boyle was going to be linked in wasn't the, he the guy who did the latest one's quite acclaimed as a director yeah. and 
No, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, you happy? You happy doing two movies? Aren't yeah, you? and we can we can do it as one episode. Yeah, that's that's your choice gone for the next few months anyway. Because <laughs> I've chose two. Yeah. <laughs> My show, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be a show without us. <laughs> Love you both, guys. Thank happy you. with that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's going to be after Christmas, but then again, this show is probably not going out until after Christmas. It'll anyway. probably be 2023, and who, we'll all be who, dead through COVID be anyway. Pandemic, so. there'll, yeah. be, there'll be four other James Bonds by the time <laughs> this show goes. There'll be a female James Bond. <laughs> oh God, no! Bye, guys. See you later. See you later. Cheers. The management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Astrid Arms, that infernal jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, here. Good night, ladies. Good night, sir. When you fail down, try positive thinking. That's what I told the man said Don't wear a frown Try positive thinking Laugh at your troubles instead You've got to look On the bright side On hope so much depends With your confidence sinking Positive thinking Helps you on the way my friend When things look black Try Positive thinking, treat every season as spring. No glancing back, try. Positive thinking, trust what tomorrow may bring. This crazy world that we live in will keep on spinning round. But with good, strong, positive thinking, we'll get together and life won't let us down. Shut up. Oh, shut up. We enjoy it.